You, however, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecutions, sufferings, what kinds of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, the persecutions I endured, yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. For I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time for my departure is near. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. The life of Paul, that intrepid warrior that you and I have been tracking these last few Sabbaths, came to an end with this sound. Shh. The razor-sharp edge of a silver blade in a Roman executioner's hand. Just one split second, and Paul was beheaded. His lips now silent. His heart now stopped. His brilliant intellect, darkness. And yet he died unafraid. How could that be? How could that be? And can you and I die the same way? That's the question. Let's pray. Oh, Father, teach us how to die so that we might learn how to live in Jesus. We pray. Amen. I've got to tell you, it is, it is an utterly surreal narrative, the way this warrior's life ends. I mean, where were we last week? The brethren. Remember? The brethren. Paul makes the concession. Seven days in the temple. The inevitable happens. There's a flash mob when they recognize this most recognizable face in the Roman Empire, a flash mob that nearly lynches him. The Romans intervene under the cover of night with a Roman army escort in chains. Paul is slipped out of Jerusalem and now begins the dragging of the wait, three long years of waiting in chains in Caesarea, cut off from the church, which, by the way, didn't step forward to seek his release, 
cut off from the churches he has planted, Gentile churches, who have to be wondering, where in the world is Paul? Anybody hear from him? Two consecutive Roman governors, four public hearings in which he is not released until finally in desperation in that Roman courtroom in Caesarea, he speaks the faded words, I appeal to Caesar. And if you're a Roman citizen, you are granted that appeal. And so Paul is turned over to a centurion named Julius to stand trial in Rome before an emperor named Nero. Yeah, Nero. And now we enter into the miss, the mystery of Paul's ending. I mean, come on. The book of Acts ends with this triumphant two years of house arrest in the city on the seven hills, and it stops. Paul is in house arrest. He has visitation rights with his friends and acquaintances. Boom, the end. That's not the end. What happens next? Nobody's sure. Does he have, not a word in Acts about a hearing before Nero. Not a word in Acts about multiple hearings before the execution. Nobody knows. Did his prayer, did his dream there in Romans 15, I will go to Spain before I die for Christ. I will go to Spain. Did that dream come true? We don't know. Nobody knows. All we have is the last hurriedly scribbled out letter Paul ever writes. And from that letter, there are pieces of embedded evidence that give us a suggested ending. We will look at those right now. Because also embedded in that last will and testament is the secret on how to die unafraid. And that's the secret I want. Open your Bible to 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy. Near the end of the New Testament. If you get to Hebrews, you've gone too far. Pull it back. Second Timothy is just two pages in my Bible. Second Timothy. Some evidence emerges right near the very end. And we're going we're to imagine what this could be telling us. Second Timothy. This is a letter, by the way, that begins with this tender, tender salutation to my Beloved son, Timothy. Paul's not married. He has no children. Timothy, we remember that name in this journey that you and I have been walking through. We remember, wasn't he the young boy that was converted there by Paul in the city of Lystra? Yep, that one. That was the boy that stood there and watched the people in Lystra stone Paul to death? Yes, that same Timothy. Watching the the corpse, he thought, being dragged out of the city and dumped outside the gates? Same young Timothy who wept over the stilled form of Paul who leaps to his feet. And marches back into town. But after that moment, they are, they are bound together at the heart. Aging prisoner, young pastor. That's the Timothy. Oh, 
Let's go to the end. Let's go to the end. So go, to, go over to chapter 4. Paul gives us now a clue. It's a big one. It's helpful. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 16. At my first defense, hit the pause button right there. Okay, now what do we know? There is a first defense. We weren't sure how many times he appeared before Nero. Did he appear before Nero in any of them? We don't know. At my first defense, no one came to my support, but everyone deserted me. May it not be held against them all alone. Well, keep reading. But the Lord stood at my side and gave me strength so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. And I was delivered from the lion's mouth. Now, is that a cryptic description of Nero? We don't know. I was delivered from the lion's mouth. That's the devil for sure, right? Like a roaring lion, Peter would remind us. I was delivered from the lion's mouth. So the first defense has ended. And we can conclude, misty as it is, that something takes place. Now, this, is, this has us curious. This business of nobody stepping forward, not even Dr. Luke, who will be there the second time. What's happened in Rome? Ah, could it be that the Christians, this fledgling infant church, is under intense persecution in Rome right now? Could it be that the city of Rome has been set on fire, as the rumors indicate, by the Emperor Nero himself, who wanted to rebuild the trashy center of the city on the seven hills, sets the fire? The greatest Roman historian, Tacitus, describes what happens. By the way, five days the fire rages. We just celebrated a few weeks ago Chicago's big fire. Remember this? Well, you don't remember it, but it was 100 years ago. The fire of Chicago. Everybody still talks about it. Five days that fire raged. Seven of the 14 divisions were either totally destroyed or damaged. Half of the city is in ashes. Now, Tacitus says, let me tell you what happened next. Therefore, he's writing this in Latin, to scotch the rumor, Nero substituted culprits and punished with the utmost refinements of cruelty a class of men, scapegoats, that's what they're called, loathed for their vices, whom the crowd styled Christians, Christus from whom they got their name, had been executed by the sentence of the procurator Pontius Pilate when Tiberius was emperor. Their execution was made a matter of sport. Some were sewn up in the skins of wild beasts and then savaged, by, savaged to death by dogs. Others were fastened to crosses as living torches to serve as lights when the daylight failed. A massive persecution has broken out. Why should we be surprised or condemn the fact nobody came forward? Why would you come forward now? Assuming that Paul was released after his first defense, I escaped the jaws of the lion, and spends two years, because that is what scholars would estimate would be the break, two years traveling around, maybe getting to Spain, who knows? What is clear now is that he has been incarcerated all over again in the same city of Rome. Only there's no house arrest now. No, no. He's in that subterranean dungeon called Mamertine. And he knows that his time is running out. 
In fact, just before he talks about his first defense, this line, Timothy, my beloved son, do your best to come to me quickly. He'll end the letter. Please come before winter. Why? Winter shuts down the sea lanes. That's why nobody can come from Asia Minor to Rome. Come now. Come to me. Come quickly. That's all we know. And so he turned to his last will and testament. And from that will and testament on the eve of his execution, a confession treasured by all of Christendom today is uttered. And in the confession, the secret to to dying unafraid. Here we go. For I am already being poured out like a drink. The word here is the sacrificial pouring out at the altar. I am already being poured out like a drink, a drink offering, and the time for my departure is near. Where's the secret? Well, it's here. Embrace your mortality. Whatever we just read, the first secret jumps right out, and so we grab it. Secret number one, embrace your mortality. The time for my departure is near. What's going, what's going on with that word? Uh, the word departure is actually a very poignant word because Paul has spent a life saying goodbye. Some of you have grown up with a life that has said too many goodbyes. You already know. Just getting on a plane is bad and sad enough. But when, they, when Paul would leave, there was no plane. Oftentimes, he's on a ship. The word for departure is loosing. The time of my loosing has come. And what's loosing? Loosing is, a, is that, that braided rope that is bound to the shoreline that tethers the boat to land. When they're, when they're ready to leave, the rope is unwound. It's thrown to the sailors, puff of wind, and the vessel sails out of the harbor. The time of my loosing has come. What's he really saying? The time for me to say goodbye for the last time has come. There may be a lump in the throat of this intrepid man. If you don't get here soon enough, we will have already said our last goodbye. Ah. Paul, by the way, speaking of embracing your mortality... Paul has lived constantly with this idea that he's going to die. Watch this. He scribbled to the, his church plan in Corinth, I face death every day. The old King James reads, I face, I die daily. I'm facing death every day. He is considering his end every day. But that's the secret. If you don't want to be afraid of death, you've got to talk about death. You have to face death. You have to deal with death. You can't just put it off. Some of you think, I'll be jinxed if I say anything about my death. So I'm not going to say anything about it, then nobody hears it, and then I won't die. Rubbish. You'll still die. You got to talk about it. Years ago, there was a book called Tuesdays with Maury. You remember that book? I read the book. It's a great book, written by uh, Mitch Album, who's still, by the way, sports journalist for the Detroit Free Press. All right? So Mitch... He had this beloved mentor in college. 20 years ago, when he was in college, this mentor, this professor, meant so much to him. And now Mitch has heard that this mentor has contracted Lou Gehrig's disease, ALS. He's dying. 
And somehow Mitch arranges for him to visit the mentor, and every Tuesday they would get together, and this dying man who embraces his mortality is giving Mitch lessons for life. And when you read the book, you get the lessons. Paul embraces his mortality. That's a key. And by the way, for us as Christians, is that, is, is that not a huge reality? I mean, what, hap- what has happened for us? We just sang about it. The resurrected king resurrects me. Early in the book, Paul writes these words to remind Timothy, hey, boy, it's not like we don't have hope. And so here at the beginning of the book, Timothy, this grace that has saved you, Paul says, this grace has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death. The great English poet John Donne wrote the poem, Death Be Not Proud. It opens with those words. It ends with these words, O death, thou shalt die. Death will die. Jesus has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. So when we embrace our mortality, we have this, that we have this substory, this subplot thoroughly Im- embedded in our minds. Death is not the last, it's not the last word. Oh, it's true. Death can take your life, but it cannot keep your life. It can't keep it. It'll have to give you back. But the time of my departure is at hand. Yep, that day when the one who is the resurrection and the life will sit on that cloud of glory and all you who love is appearing, you know that that day is coming. Jesus, who said, I am the resurrection and the life, she who believes in me, though she dies, yet shall she live. That hope. Oh, yes, death can take our life, but it cannot keep our life. Can I get a hallelujah to that? It cannot keep our life. So embrace your mortality. And by the way, do not embrace death. Do not embrace death. Death is an enemy. Never embrace death. Rage, rage against the darkness. Don't, don't embrace it. What you embrace is you make peace with Jesus. You make peace with Jesus, who is your friend, your savior, and your deliverer from death. That's why Paul is not afraid of dying. The secrets on how to die unafraid are embedded right here. We've just looked at the first one. Now we go to the second one. Not before being reminded that Paul himself wrote this line. I love this line. This is scribbled to his church plan in Ephesus. Wake up, sleeper. Oh, this is great. Wake up, sleeper. Rise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. For Paul and every writer in the New Testament and every writer in the Old Testament, death is a sleep from which you can be awakened. Death can take you, but it cannot keep you. Ha! All right. Secret number two, verse seven. The, the last will and testament of the intrepid warrior goes on. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Secret number one, embrace your mortality. Secret number two, fulfill your destiny. What's going on here? By the way, when when it says fulfill fulfill your destiny, don't forget your destiny either. Come on. Some of you, just like young Timothy, grew up in the faith. Yes, you did. 
Timothy, who was blessed with his godly grandmother, what was her name? Lois. Godly mother, what was her name? Eunice, has a Greek pagan father. But, his, but the maternal leaders of his family are believers, first as Jews and then as Christians. Timothy's grown up singing, Jesus loved me, loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Well, they didn't have that song back then, but he grew up believing. Some of you have grown up with that song. Yes, you have. You've grown, you've grown up with the Bible. Never apologize for that huge spiritual advantage you were giving, given. And by the way, if you're young parents, and I see a bunch of you young parents here, do not do anything to forbid and prevent your children from enjoying that same huge advantage you had. We've got young parents now. They were grown up. They were grown up with the songs and the stories. Are they doing that with their children? Oh, I wish. Oh, how I wish. We cannot raise a new generation that has not grown up with the faith of our fathers and mothers. Embrace your mortality. Fulfill your destiny because God has wired you. I am what I am, what we shared last Sabbath. You know, when Tasnir was singing up here and she said, you know, I just love to sing. You know why? Because that's the way God wired her. He hasn't wired me that way. But he wired her that way. And what a beautiful expression of her devotion to God as she worships. We are all wired uniquely. No, there's nobody just like you. So you got to show up, number one. And number two, you got to know that you have a destiny. Some of you have found it. Some of you have not. That's okay. You don't have to have found it yet. But some of you have found it. Paul has kept true to his destiny. I have finished the race I was given, and I have kept the faith I was taught. Yeah, but Dwight, I thought we are talking about how to die unafraid. What's this have to do with dying unafraid? Glad you asked. Let me tell you why. There's a line in Scripture that I have memorized. I say it all the time to myself. It's been a huge blessing for me. And it's from the old NIV. So I've got the new NIV here. It's the one before this one. But I'm going to put the line on the screen for you. I'd love for you to memorize it because it's true. See what you think. This is Psalm 138, verse 8. This is 2 Timothy 3.14. <laughs> I just need you to know before I give you this line. Don't go anywhere. I want you to get this line before you leave. I just want you to know that I wasn't making up the stuff about Paul telling Timothy, man, you've grown up singing, Jesus loved me, loves me, this I know. I'm not making that up. Just sentences before this last will and testimony, covenant. Here we go. Chapter 3. But as for you, my son, my beloved son, Timothy, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of because you know those from whom you learned it. Yes, mommy and grandma. And how from infancy. This is what I'm talking about. You want your children from infancy. That's why we've got the, these great Sabbath schools downstairs. I don't care about this pandemic. They are filled with children. You know why? Because parents want their children from infancy to be filled with the truth as it is in Jesus. No apology. You're not taking some great heroic risk for showing up with your children at Sabbath school. Hundreds are showing up. 
Oh, you remember, Timothy, how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Yes, boy, you, you know. That's why you must fulfill your destiny that was begun when you were just a toddler. Oh, that's good. Now, that line from Psalm 138, verse 8. This is great. Memorize this. The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. Oh, Dwight, that's too short. No, it's not too short. So you can memorize it. The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. I say that all the time to myself. Why? Because there are times when I'm wondering, is my purpose for living still in place? And if not, what am I supposed to do about it? Nothing. Because if God has a purpose for your life, and here's how it's going to help you with your fear of death. If God has a purpose for your life, listen carefully now. If God has a purpose for your life, and he does, you've been wired for a unique purpose. If God has a purpose for your life, they say, Dwight, you're repeating yourself. Well, they sang one line in the chorus 13 times. I guess repetition links it harder and stronger into the mind. Listen, if God has a divine purpose for your life, then guess what? God being God is not stopping your life till the purpose is done. If you're alive right now, and you look alive to me from up here, if you're alive right now, the purpose of God for your life is still in place. It is still happening. You have no idea what is happening, but it is happening for you, my friend. And it is happening for me. The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. That's huge good news about not having to worry. Because if he's going to fulfill his purpose for me, I'm not going to die till the purpose is over. There's nothing wrong with that. Listen, that doesn't give you the consolation that you're going to live forever. That's not saying, therefore, I will live forever. No, your purpose may be done at 28. I'm serious. My purpose could end tomorrow, today. But it's okay, because when I die, my family will know his purpose was fulfilled. Why would God have let him die before finishing his business? I know it's not consolation when we've lost a young teen, a teen so full of promise, we say, how could, how could this happen? It's heartbreaking. But let us not minimize the truth that God can fulfill a teen's life in those first fruitful years of living to the place that boy, that girl has fulfilled her mission on this planet before she died. Don't tell God he can't do it. You need at least 40 years. He says, I do not. Jesus died at 35. If you're alive... There's a purpose for you, and I hope you find it if you haven't. Embrace your mortality. Mortality, that's secret number one. Secret number two, fulfill your destiny. And by the way, don't waste your days. Don't fritter away the opportunities you have right now to be living out and discovering your purpose. Don't waste today. You won't get another day like this ever again. If you don't want to be afraid of death and stay focused on the high calling and destiny that God is growing in your life, then no matter when you die, you die with your destiny fulfilled, and you can, you can, you can rest in peace. You can sleep in peace.
I have fought a good fight. I have finished my race. I have kept the faith. Three secrets total. Two of them we've just heard. The last verse. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge... By the way, he's talking about righteous judge because he knows he will not stand in the end before a righteous judge. But I will have one one day. Oh, that's, that's pregnant with meaning. The Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, yes, sirree, and not only to me, but good news to everybody listening right now, but also to all who have longed for Jesus appearing. Can I get an amen for that? Come on, Adventists. This is your promise. Secret number three, claim your legacy. Secret number one, embrace your mortality. Secret number two, fulfill your destiny. And secret number three now, claim your legacy. Paul says, I have a crown waiting for me. Oh, he's claiming it. Why should I be afraid? When my crown from Jesus is in store for me right now, on the eve of his impending death, he claims his legacy and he says, it's mine. And by the way, when he writes the word crown in Greek, as he wrote, it looks like this. There should be a name that jumps out of this uh, Greek word for crown to you. It jumps out to you. What's that name? Your mask is on. What's that name? Stephen, every time you think about it, every time this apostle would scribble the word crown, Stephanos, the crown of victory, every time he scribbles that word and looks at it, what memories do you suppose return to him as he stood there that day, sanctioning, supporting the stoning, the brutal stoning of Stephanos, the first Christian martyr? Paul knows that in a few days, he will be a martyr too. It's from the Greek word martus, which means witness. He will witness as Stephen did by his death. Martyrs. I have a book in my library titled Fox's Book of Martyrs. It's gruesome. They wouldn't print something like that today. In the darkened Middle Ages, men, women, and children gave their lives for believing and standing up for Jesus and his truth by the tens of thousands, some estimates millions during that long period of darkness, became martyrs, witnesses by their deaths. Well, fortunately for you and me, that's all behind us, right? Wrong. It's not behind us. I can prove it to you right now. The Apocalypse, the Bible's last book. Watch this. You'll see it. Revelation chapter 20, verse 4, there will be martyrs in heaven. So that's just because they've talked about martyrs in heaven. The preceding verse, so I've summarized it so that we can get the next verse. There will be martyrs in heaven who had been beheaded. There will be martyrs in heaven who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the Word of God. Now, keep going, because they, John identifies who these martyrs are. They had not worshipped the beast 
or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. You don't have to know much about the apocalypse to know that that's language that describes the end game just before Jesus comes. Some sort of global enforcement with a command, you will do it on the pain of death or you will be executed. Has that happened yet? No, it hasn't. It hasn't happened yet. The American writer Ellen White says, yeah, that's true. That's a good, that's a good interpretation. She writes, prior to the last closing conflict, many, this is just before Jesus comes, many will be imprisoned, many will flee for their lives from cities and towns, and many will be martyrs for Christ's sake in standing in defense of the truth. Many. Many. You mean in this age? Yep. You're talking about this century? Could be. Do you mean this decade? Could be. Many. Shall we fear such a death? And by the way, there are martyrs all over this planet as we speak. The problem is you and I with our Western exclusivity have determined there's no martyrs because of our septic world where it can't happen. But all over this planet, there are men and women laying down their lives for the Lord Jesus Christ. Shall we fear such a death? Don't have to. Watch this. This is beautiful. Desire of ages. The disciples were not endowed with the courage and fortitude of the martyrs until such grace was needed. <laughs> you don't have the courage of a martyr right now, and I can tell you what, neither do I. We're not going to go out to seek martyrdom. Only a fool would do that. We just don't have it. And by the way, speaking of the disciples of Jesus, guess what? Judas, who commits suicide, out of the picture, they're all martyred except one boy, John boy. All martyred. All of them. Every single one of them. And they tried with John boy. The disciples were not endowed with the courage and fortitude of the martyrs until such grace was needed. Do we have to be afraid? No. I'm not afraid. Why? You'll be fine. I will be fine. And if, like Paul, it is our destiny to lay down our lives for Christ Jesus our Lord, that at that moment we will be endued with the courage and fortitude of the martyrs. That's it. And there it is, ladies and gentlemen, the threefold secret to dying unafraid. Put it up again. Secret number one, embrace your mortality in Jesus. Secret number two, fulfill your destiny in Jesus. Secret number three, claim your legacy in Jesus. And now for one last moment, let's reverently look in on the final moments of Paul's life. Take that moment where, when he stands before the wily Nero. You're going to read now a striking word picture collage from sketches from the life of Paul. 
You ever find that little book? Do yourself a favor. Get it. All right. So now they're, they're face to face. The protagonist and the antagonist. Here we go. Paul and Nero face to face. The youthful monarch, and I insert the words because it's true, he was 32 years old at the time. He's just a boy. The youthful monarch bearing upon his sin-stamped countenance the shameful record of the passions that reigned within. The aged prisoner's calm and benignant face telling of a heart at peace with God and man. The wretch whose soul was stained with incest and matricide, he killed his own mother, was robed in purple and seated upon the throne while the purest and noblest of men stood before the judgment seat, despised, hated, and fettered. Paul notices that the place is packed with spectators. He is well known in the empire, after all. As Paul gazed upon the throng before him in the courtroom, Jews, Greeks, Romans, with strangers from many lands, his soul was stirred with an intense desire for their salvation. Once more, Paul had an opportunity to raise aloft before a wandering multitude the banner of the cross of Christ with more than human eloquence and power. What's that mean? Ah, that's what Jesus promised. Oh, I got to hit the pause button right here. Don't ever forget this promise of Jesus. Luke chapter 12, verses 11 and 12. If you can read it in the New Living Translation, it goes like this. Don't think in advance about what you're going to say when you stand in front of Nero. Because at that moment, as the NLT puts it, while you are standing there, the Spirit of my Father will give you what to say. It'll be given to you. You don't write a speech and put it in your shoes, hoping you'll have the speech the day you're arrested. It'll be given to you. Trust God. Don't worry. I love that. With more than human eloquence and power, Paul that day urged home upon their hearts the truths of the gospel. Now, I want you to try to picture this moment, because this is a stunning word picture. You got to see it. All right, let it, let it, let it form in your mind. His countenance, we're talking about the prisoner, the aged prisoner, Paul. His countenance glows with the light of heaven as though reflecting the rays of the sun, like the roof opened up, and there's this shaft of sunlight on his face. Many who looked upon him in that hall of judgment saw his face as it had been the face of an angel. By the way, Acts chapter 6, the trial of Stephen, and it begins, the last verse of Acts 6, with this very line, the face of an angel. That was Saul's impression of Stephen. And wouldn't you know it? Saul's about to die, and what he saw in Stephen is happening to him. He has no idea it's happening. His face aglow like an angel. There'll be an angel for you when you die. There'll be an angel for me. Many who looked upon him in that judgment hall saw his face as an angel. Now, keep reading. This is unbelievable. Tears dimmed many eyes that had never before been seen to weep. Hardened men in the courtroom. Tears dimmed many eyes that had never before been seen to weep. The gospel message found its way to the minds and hearts of many who would never have listened to it but for the imprisonment of Paul. 
There it is, ladies and gentlemen, the shining reason God will still allow martyrs at the end of time to lay down their lives before Jesus comes is for the profound and lasting effect their testimony will have in turning witnesses who view it to salvation just in time. And so God allows it. And afterwards, if he says, is that, was, was that okay with you? But of course. What's going on in Nero's mind? Watch this. Never had Nero heard the truth as he heard it upon that occasion. Never had the enormous guilt of his own life been revealed to him as it was revealed that day. The light of heaven had pierced the sin-polluted chambers of his soul. He quaked with terror at the thought of a tribunal before which he, ruler of the world, should be arraigned and where his deeds should meet a just reward. That moment, the unbelievable, that moment, the invitation of mercy was extended even to the guilty and hardened Nero, but only for a moment. Never write off a public figure as being beyond the reach of divine mercy. Never write off a public figure as too hardened, too impervious to be penetrated by the good news of our Lord Jesus Christ. Light shining into that dark heart, but only for a moment. We are told that Nero is so intimidated by the God of the Apostle Paul that he dismisses the court with no decision. Paul is sent back to the Mamertine dungeon. And then it reads, when the dungeon door snapped shut, the door to mercy for Nero was closed. He had a few moments to change his mind. But he said no. Oh, my. Only later was the command, by the way, given to take the prisoner out and execute him. And on the day of Paul's execution, look at his spirit. Look. Oh, can I be like this? Oh, I think, why not? Here it is. Paul was led in a private manner to the place of execution. Few spectators were allowed to be present. But the hardened soldiers appointed to attend him listened to his words and with amazement saw him cheerful and even joyous in the prospect of such a death. Can you believe it? Apparently his secret works. You can come to your death unafraid. They saw him cheerful and even joyous in prospect of such a death. His spirit of forgiven, forgiven, forgiveness toward his murderers and his unwavering confidence in Christ to the very last proved a savor of life unto life to some who witnessed his martyrdom. Now keep reading. More than one of those guards ere long accepted the Savior whom Paul preached and fearlessly sealed their faith with their blood. How did Tertullian put it? The blood of Christians is seed. It's the only reason God allows martyrdom. Somebody gets saved that wouldn't have been saved. So you can know that, and I can know that. Should the day ever come, somebody will get saved. Wow. Finally, as he stood at the place of martyrdom, 
He saw not the gleaming sword of the executioner or the green earth so soon to receive his blood. He looked up through the calm blue heaven of that summer's day to the throne of the eternal. His last thoughts and hopes are centered on the second advent of his Lord. And as the sword of the executioner descends, and the shadows of death gather about the martyr's soul, his latest or last thought springs forward, as will his earliest, his first thought coming up on that great awakening, that great getting up morning. Where were the thoughts springing forward to? To meet the life giver, his Lord Jesus Christ, who shall welcome him one day to the joy of the blessed. Amen and amen. My, oh, my, oh, my. And thus ends the life of this noble friend of Jesus, a life we've lived with now for a few weeks together, a journey we've taken that I predict will leave none of us ever the same again. Let's pray. Oh, God. Grant us the privilege of living a life as faithful as Paul's. And if it should glorify you, Father, and fulfill the destiny of our lives, then grant us the privilege of dying a death as faithful as Paul's. For I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. 